Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. We are uh, thinking about the tenure of the jump, uh, this little series in which we've celebrated this fall with the encouragement that we are to jump into kingdom life and kingdom values and kingdom work. And we've talked about some of the obstacles and what that looks like. And today we're talking about the tenure of the jump and what that means and how that fits together. And so when you stop and you think just for a moment about how that all fits together, you, maybe what comes to my mind is King David. And King David is kind of the poster child of the monarchy of Israel. So if you just for a moment stopped and you thought about this reality... David is the second king of all of Israel, and he, he comes at the time of the infancy of the monarchy. And so uh, he doesn't, uh, he's not the first king, he doesn't build the temple, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that David doesn't do, that people after him are arguably going to have much more impact on the monarchy. But in its infancy, David is the king, and somehow... Through history, through time, we have associated the height of the monarchy with David. I mean, when you think about the golden period of the monarchy of Israel, the kingdom of David comes to the forefront. And, and that just is historically true for whatever reason. And, and it's sort of a romance that has developed over time historically with this character, David. And he's a storied individual. I mean, we find him as the little shepherd boy who becomes the king. So we have all of that Cinderella story. Uh, I guess it would be Cinderella would be a David story, really, if you thought about it. But rags to riches story. And, and then we find that, you know, he's the Renaissance man. He's the original Renaissance man. I mean, this is David who plays the harp and he's a musician, but he also kills the lion and the bear. He fights Goliath. He's a warrior. I, I mean, you know, he's, he's kind of a man's man. I mean, he's kind of got all of that stuff going on. And yet he's a deeply flawed human being. He, He's said to be a man after God's own heart, but, but his failures are epic. And it's not just, you know, the Bathsheba story. It's, it, it's his own kids and family and the dysfunction and the revolution within the politics of the kingdom, but within his own family. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult story, and yet we really think of it as sort of this idyllic period in the time of the monarchy. And for those of us that know this language, it's sort of like Camelot, you know, <laughs> older people help the younger people. And it's not just historically that we think of David in that way. We think of it theologically, too. Because the reality is that David becomes this center point, this anticipation of all the investment and the story and the narrative of Israel coming and reaching in some way, reaching its pinnacle, but then understanding that someone from the line of David and the tradition of David, that there will come then this messianic tradition that's also tied in to David and his family. And so we have this theological sense and this historical sense, and, and David becomes sort of the center point. In many ways, you could argue both historically and theologically that, that he is the center point of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and uh, particularly in the Old Testament. And, uh, and so it's fascinating to me what have you invested in. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but of all of the biblical characters, more art has been generated historically uh, centering on King David than any of the other characters of the Bible. Did you know that? Tens of thousands of pieces of art. There is not a single master who would we consider a master of art who did not paint multiple paintings of David in one form or another. 
So pick your, pick your favorite and then go see how many paintings or sculptures or whatever it might be of David gets represented because for whatever reason, <laughs> he's a center point in so many ways. All of that said then, in the New Testament, we have Paul who's preaching a sermon. And in the sermon, he's talking about King David. And this is his assessment. This is what he tells us that I think is this this amazing telling moment. Acts 13, 36. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. I just think that the Bible has this sort of... uh, very realistic view of human life. And so we have this, this wonderful story, this, this, this epic leader, this, this person who symbolizes so much, both theologically and historically, and what do we say about him? Well, he served during his generation, and then he slept with his ancestors. That's a pretty healthy way to look at life. Now, this isn't a morbid conversation, and it's not made to depress you, but there is a tenure to the jump. There is a tenure to the time that we have been entrusted And there is a call on our lives to do something about that. And and I think it pays us to really stop and to think about how are we spending our time? Are we spending our time in the intentionality that God intends and the intentionality that we had hoped? If, If you went back and visited with your younger self, would your younger self recognize your current self? What advice would your younger self give your current self? And so when we think about who we are and what we're doing and, and, and how we're spending our time and our energy, I, I, I was shocked at some of those statistics in the jelly bean story. Like, I don't know if you caught this, but we spend more time grooming than we spend loving our family. Did you catch that? 500 and something days taking care of our loved ones, 600 and something days just being presentable. For some of us, that's easier than others. How are you spending your time and your energy? I was in Helsinki, Finland uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, we were walking through kind of this uh, beautiful downtown area, and uh, it's a a park area that really extends for blocks and blocks and blocks, kind of a corridor through the center of downtown. And at the end of that long corridor, that long park area, there's a beautiful statue. And uh, I don't really read uh, Finnish, so I don't know what he did or who he was. Uh, but I took a picture because it's a beautiful statue, and here it is. So, uh, man, look at that. So whoever this guy is, he's important. He did something really good, and, and he's got a giant statue there, and it's a very important position, worked hard. I mean, I don't know how many of us could expect to end up with a statue, but there's a metaphor in this picture. Has anybody picked up on it yet? <laughs> Let me zoom in a little. So it turns out, no matter how hard you work, even if you get a statue, at some point, something's going to poop on you. I mean, <laughs> at some point, whatever it is. And we have a very short tenure, and, and we have this opportunity to do something of significance. And I don't know about you, but it seems like we take ourselves incredibly seriously, don't we? Our life, our journey, our wisdom, what's happening to us. And the scripture seems to not blink at this reality. In fact, it encourages us to think about it with a sober mind. So I thought it'd be good for us today to just think a little bit about generational politics and what that looks like. How many of you are completely comfortable and well-versed in the language of Gen X, Gen Y, millennials? Uh, You got it going on? Everybody know who that is? You know how it all breaks down? 
All right, if you feel like you know and are confident about that conversation, raise your hand. That's what I suspected. So let's talk about it just a little bit because I think it matters. I suppose we could start with the greatest generation. The greatest generation is that generation uh, that, that really are most of our seniors today, most of our folks uh, that have contributed in some very significant way. And uh, we, we came after the fact to call them the greatest generation. Generally speaking, how we refer to generations has to do with historical identifiers. And so the greatest generation was that generation that lived through World Wars I and II or became part of uh, the world in the World War II era, fought the war, uh, all of those things, and great courage and leadership and uh, really fantastic things. And then after, of course, the greatest generation, we have the boomers, the baby boomers. And the baby boomers cover a lot of territory from 1944 to 1964. So if you were born between 1944 and 1964, you are a boomer. And baby boomer is a very positive moniker, meaning out of the economic growth and the sense of tranquility and well-being that encompassed the world in a post-war world. Uh, families settled down and had a lot of kids. And so boomers are a result, a baby boom. You know, we're home, we're going to build families, and we're going to build communities and neighborhoods. And, and so the baby boomers come into existence. And then following the baby boomers, by the way, there are 76 million baby boomers still roaming around the planet in the United States right now. Gen Xers become the next generation. And they were born between 1965 and 1979. The Gen Xers. Now, why do we call them Gen Xers? Anybody know? Well, the reason they were called the Gen Xers is because there was no historical identifier to, to name them. So we had the greatest generation and the boomers, and then we didn't really have another thing happening. And so the sociologists said, well, we'll just call them Gen X. And then whenever they become, whenever we finally figure out what that historical identifier is, we'll go back and rename them. But we never really found the historical identifier, so we've just left them as the Gen Xers. Following the Gen Xers, we have what we call now, because if you're following along and you have sung the song and you know the alphabet, X. Good, that's really good. It was a little tentative for my taste, but yeah, yeah. We have X and then, and then, okay, so now the next generation is called Generation Y, because we didn't know what to call them either. And the Gen Ys are interesting because they were born between 1980 and 1994, and they have become the beloved group that we no longer call Gen Y. Now we call them Millennials. Those are the Millennials. So if you didn't know, you can self-identify now, you know. And it's interesting because the Millennials are not a very homogenous group, though we think of them and talk about them, and they are often written about as if they are a homogenous group. But even within the sociological structure, we consider there to be Gen Y.1 and Gen Y.2. Gen Y.1 are those who are aged from 25 to 29, and Gen Y.2 are those from 29 to 39. Because even within the context of their distinctive culture, they break pretty evenly across that reality. Now, it might help you to know that millennials are called millennials, and, and they have sort of this idea and understanding of how millennialism works. So maybe I could ask you to give me characteristics of millennials, and, and you could give me some, because they are popularly talked about. 
And where do these ideas about millennials come from? Well, interestingly, most of the articles and information and research about millennials are done by other millennials. So it is generally not Gen Xers, our boomers are the greatest generation who are critiquing millennials. It is generally some millennials critiquing other millennials. And so when we talk about millennials as entitled, we talk about millennials in lots of other ways that are not necessarily complimentary, just keep in mind that is generally millennials talking about each other. It's not other groups critiquing millennials, and that seems to be important. After Gen Y, then comes Gen Z, because sociologists are not all that creative. The Gen Zs are the newest generation, born between 1995 and 2015, and we would expect going forward that we'll see a lot of other things come to the surface. How did we begin to call millennials millennials, and who decides all of this stuff? Interestingly, it's not just scientists who are labeling groups like this. In fact, millennials are the most fascinating ones because some people say that it was uh, a sociologist who coined the phrase millennial. Some people say that it was a novelist who coined the phrase, and other people say it was Billy Idol. So I'm not, not really sure exactly where it comes from. But as we try to create these historical identifiers, now we, we have a whole bunch of new ideas for Gen Z and those who are coming after. We can call them Gen Techs. We can call them Post-Millennialists. We can call them Generation Wi-Fi. We can call them Generation Nuns. Some people call them Generation Duns. And so we have a lot of different sociological sort of ideas that we're floating around for the generations that are coming up. And I think it matters to us in the kingdom of God to think about this because it turns out that we are called to jump in together as generations. That we are called to look up and down and have deep respect and honor for the generations that God has created and the family of God. Our children, our Gen Zers, and our Gen Yers, and our Gen Xers, and our Boomers, and our greatest generation, we are all collectively a part of the same thing. We don't think about our children, or our high school kids, or our junior high kids as future, a future part of the church. They are a current part of the church. They matter today. They, don't, they won't matter sometime. They're not in training for what they're going to accomplish. That's a piece of who they are. But they have something to contribute in a huge way today. And that's really what we're talking about. The tenure of the jump and how it works and how it fits. So the Bible, it, it, it speaks very directly about that. Psalms 90, 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, none of us like to sit around and number our days. We're not really into that. I don't know about you. Just so you know, the older you get, the less fun that is, you know. <laughs> it's more fun when you have more jelly beans, less fun when you have fewer jelly beans, you know. <laughs> Teach us to number our days. Teach us to take seriously our tenure. Teach us, I don't know about you, but the default setting, it seems like to me, is to be unhappy. Is to be in a sense of going, here's what's broken, here's what I think, this is the worry, this is the stress, this is... And so the scripture says, you know... Remember, these are precious, precious. This day, this day today is a precious day. There's another story about jelly beans and jelly beans in a jar. And someone calculated one time that in the average lifetime, you have about 3,000 Saturdays. 3,000 Saturdays. 
I don't remember all the math, so if you go look that up and it's you know, pick whatever age, that's what the study was. I don't remember. There's a story about a guy that had a jar in his garage, and every Saturday he took one out to remind him that I only have so many of these to spend. These aren't infinite. They're not endless. How will I spend this day? I want to make it significant. And it's not just Saturdays. It's Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and all of the days of the week. Teach us to number our days. Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what God's will is. And so you and I are invited to just sit down and take a long look and say, I've got a tenure and I want to spend it well. I love the way the story of Elijah concludes. I think it's a beautiful story. I think it is both powerful in its literal sense, but it has this powerful imagery. And so we find that we left Elijah last week and he was in a a cave and he was uh, depressed and discouraged. And we talked last week about the stages of discouragement and what that looks like. And we talked about how God came in the gentle whisper and began to talk to him about the reality. Here's how he saw the world, but here's what was really going on. And, and so we find that a part of that conversation is God saying to Elijah, now listen, I'm appointing someone who will come after you. You're going to have some assistance along the way. And so we enter into the book of 2 Kings, and we find that Elijah is about to anoint Elisha, who will become the follower, who will follow after Elijah's life. And so we have this scene in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, in, in which we have Elijah, who has now anointed Elisha, and Elisha is following after Elijah. And don't you, don't you appreciate the fact that these two names are so similar? easy to mess it up. So uh, when you stop and you think, so we have this story of Elijah and Elijah's over at Gilgal and Elisha is with him. And, and Elijah says to Elisha, listen, I've got some work to do. I've got some things going on and I need to go to Bethel. So I want you to stay here and I'm going to go to Bethel. And Elisha says, nope, wherever you go, that's where I'm going. All right. So we find Elisha following after Elijah, and they get to Bethel. And when they arrive at Bethel, we, we, we have this scene in which the prophets of that city come to Elisha, and they pull him aside, and they say, Listen, do you realize that your master is going to be taken from you today? And Elisha says, Yes, I do. Please be quiet. Elisha goes back to Elijah. They do whatever they're going to do. And then Elijah turns to Elisha and says, listen, I need to go from here to Jericho. I want you to stay here and I'm going to go take care of some things that God has asked me to do. And Elisha says, I will not. I will go wherever you go. I will follow wherever it is that you lead. And so Elijah goes to Jericho and Elisha follows him. And when they get to Jericho, there's a group of prophets and they pull Elisha aside and they say, do you realize that your master is going to be taken from you today? And he says, I do. Let's keep that quiet. And then we go back in there doing whatever they're going to do in Jericho. And now Elijah comes to Elijah and says, listen, the spirit is leading me to the Jordan. I want you to stay here while I go take care of some things down at the Jordan. And Elisha says, I will not. Wherever you go, that's where I'm going. And so Elisha follows after Elijah, and we're told that when they arrive at the Jordan River, they're a group of prophets, and they come and they pull Elisha aside and said, do you realize that your master's going to be taken? Yes, I do. Would you please be quiet? And now we have this scene, this moment, 
in which Elijah takes off his cloak and he rolls it up and he strikes the Jordan River. And we're told that the river parts and that Elijah and Elisha pass through on dry ground. And when they get to the other side of the Jordan River, there's a conversation that takes place between Elisha and Elijah. And Elijah turns to Elisha and says, listen, how may I bless you? What do you want? And Elisha says, I'll tell you what I want. I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah says, wow, that's a hard request. That's a hard request. But I'll tell you what, if you see me taken from here, then you will be given your request. But if you do not see me, then you will not be given your request. And then we're told at that moment, there's a chariot of fire that appears in the sky. It's very important here how this is worded. And the chariot of fire comes and separates Elijah from Elisha. Because so far, nothing has been able to separate them. And it separates them. And once it separates them, then Elijah Elijah is taken into heaven in a whirlwind. Now that is a a nice exit. Amen? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think about how you're going to leave... That ain't a bad deal right there. I mean, no hospitals, no doctors, no messing around. You just go, hey, going out to the river, camp, I'm going to make some eggs or something. Then there'll be a chariot of fire and a whirlwind, and I'm out. I'm out. You know? I mean, that's, that does not sound like a bad exit, does it? I mean, I can kind of imagine Elijah shouting out of the whirlwind, See ya! <laughs> Ah, I'm out. And now this, this moment, this metaphorical story that is literal, but it has all of this imagery. Elisha rips his cloak and cries out, Father, Father, there is this mourning moment. And then he bends over And he gathers up the cloak. He gathers up the mantle. He gathers up the responsibility. He gathers up the history and the story. And he rolls it up. And he goes to the Jordan and he strikes the Jordan. And the waters part. And Elisha walks on dry land. And if you are following the imagery both of the Old Testament narrative, then you have an image in your heart and in your mind of of this scene in which you have Elijah and Elisha who are doing the work in this great arena of God's kingdom. And it's like Elijah at some point calls a little time out and he and Elisha cross out of the promised land and across the Jordan and they have this moment of communion with God and with each other. And then Elijah is taken, and Elisha gathers up the mantle. And as we know, in the Old Testament, this motif comes up again and again. They pass. He passes through the waters into the promised land of God. He passes through the water. Starting in the story of creation, this motif comes up again and again. Elijah is passing through the water. He's passing through the water back into the arena. He's entering back in to carry on with the mantle of responsibility that he has been given and entrusted 
And it's this powerful transference that's taking place from Elijah to Elisha. And I think in it, there is a message for you and there's a message for me and what it means to respect the tenure of our lives and the generations in which we have been entrusted to serve. And I see four things that I think matter significantly to us as we think about this story and its application. Number one, the next generations are worth our investment. The next generations are worth our investment. I don't know what happens in our culture. We, we popularly named in the 1960s the generation gap, and if you live through that, you probably know why. Out of a very tranquil sort of idea, the greatest generation and the boomers, you know, came this period of time in which the boomers started throwing off restraint. We had the great social rebellion of the 1960s. And out of that came what we called the generation gap, an understanding that the generation coming behind us doesn't get it, doesn't appreciate, doesn't understand what real value is. And that's kind of stuck with us. And as the complexity has grown, and we have now, you know, Gen Xers and Gen Ys, and, and, and now Gen Z are the nuns or the Wi-Fis or whatever we're going to end up calling everybody, there is a certain kind of cynicism and it's not limited to older people looking at younger people. It's younger people looking at older people. It's looking around at the differences in generational understanding and not having a deep sense of respect and honor for what that looks like. But the biblical story is this. Teach us to number our days. There is wisdom in understanding what investments in generations look like. And I don't know about you, but it would seem that there is sort of a natural process that takes place. You know, you're born, you get educated, you start a career, you do stuff, you raise kids, you try to gather some things, you try to build some kind of life and security, you hope your kids are going to have it better than you did, and then at some point, you know, you're just going to work, 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 and then you're going to die. <laughs> and then when you're gone, you're just going to leave whatever to whatever, you know, because that's the way it works. I'm always reminded of that story in the Simpsons where they built the escalator to nowhere in that kind of an illustration of life. I'm just saying, don't you want a better legacy than that? I mean, don't you want a better legacy than I'm just going to keep going and then I'm going to drop? I want to invest. And the generations are worth the investment. And I, want to, I just want to challenge you. Most everybody in this room has generations behind you. The only people that don't are down at, you know, the children's center right now. All the rest of us have generations coming behind us. Are you investing? I don't mean are you coexisting. Are you investing? For most of us, we say, well, I'm going to invest in my children and my grandchildren. That's where my investment is going to be. Great. But don't stop there. That's not nearly enough. It's not nearly enough to simply say I'm investing in, in those that have been entrusted to my inner circle. Certainly start there. Don't neglect them. But, but how many of us are intentionally saying, no, I need to invest in generations there because my tenure is short. And, and I want to do well. I want to live well and I want to pass that on. And I think for those of us who are of the older persuasion, it is our responsibility with intentionality, with great optimism, with a, with a distinct lack of criticism and cynicism to reach out to the generations that are coming behind us. Amen? Amen. 
And if nobody else in the world understands this, the kingdom of God should be the place where we have a deep sense of respect for the generations, particularly those who are coming behind us. Amen? Amen. We've got a lot of churches today that are dying because the old folks are strangling the church. That's not you folks. (laughs) Amen? I mean, around here... There is an incredibly generous spirit between the generations. But in my role as in mentoring pastors, it is tragic to see how many churches will simply die when this generation dies because there is no investment going forward. And listen, investing in a younger generation is uncomfortable. The younger generation doesn't do things the same way we do. But I want to say this very distinctly. This is not our church. It is God's church, and we are stewards for a very short time. In fact, this is not our life. It is God's life, and we are stewards of it for a very short time. And then we'll do something else. Hopefully, it'll be crazy fun. (laughs) Amen? Now, as a person that's involved in mentoring young people and committed to it and spends significant time every year doing that, i got to tell you this. I'm a part of multiple mentoring groups. One is a national group that I meet with uh, on an ongoing basis. One has been a regional group. um, And uh, the regional group, we've disbanded. We're not doing it anymore. So while I'm talking to older folks about investing in younger folks, let me tell you this. The reason we disbanded that regional group is because the younger folks don't want to hear what the older folks have to say. And intergenerational respect is very important from older people to younger people, but it's just as important from younger people to older people. And while we need to understand that our kids are growing up in a way that we did not grow up, if I had one thing that I would do differently now that my children are grown, I would listen to them more. I would spend way more time trying to understand what was happening to them and what they see and what they understand that I can't possibly know. I spent way too much time trying to tell them how to do things. Way too much time trying to go, well, I'll tell you, that's a great, well, I'll blah, blah. (laughs) And if I had to do over again, I would slow that down a lot and just go, what's happening to you? What's that like? They did what? You said what? How does that work? And your teacher did what? See, the the, the whole structure is completely different. Their experiences are completely different than what you and I grew up. We grew up with law and order. We didn't have unpredictable days at school. I mean, a crazy day at school was when you got peanut butter instead of ham. Oh! We just didn't go through that much. Our lives were highly predictable. There's probably not too many of us boomers who didn't say, nope, 6 o'clock, that's dinner. And then it's the Brady Bunch. And then it's, I mean, our lives were very ordered. We didn't have a million choices. And everybody did the same things. Did you watch Brady Bunch? Of course I did. Did you watch Batman? Of course I did. That's a, that's a touchy subject, by the way. For those of you that know your history, you know Batman came out on Wednesday night. For those of us who were forced to go to church on Wednesday night. (laughs) This is my pain, and it's real. And if you think that's bad, 
the wonderful world of Disney came on Sunday night. We had not yet had the revelation that you didn't need to go back to church on Sunday night. We went to church on Sunday night during the wonderful world of Disney. Long before there was such a thing as a VCR. You did not record and watch later. You just missed it. And you'd go to school on Monday and they would say at school, Did you watch the wonderful world of Disney? No. I worship the God of the universe. Our lives were highly predictable. We were highly cohesive as a culture. That's not all good, by the way. A lot of things needed to change. But our kids are growing up in ways that we can't fully understand. But with that said, I want to remind all of you younger folks that are listening, you won't always have our experience and our wisdom. We will not always be here to tell you and help you and invest in you and I do want to tell you this, though the generations change and there is much to learn, there are many things that stay the same. There are a lot of things that continue to matter and be significant. And so I think the story of Elijah and Elisha tells us that future generations are worth the investment. But I might just broaden that to say all generations are worth the investment. And we of all people in the kingdom of God should be the ones who not only celebrate it, but practice it in very real and vivid terms. Number two, the next generations show deep commitment. I'm really tired of the story that future generations aren't as committed as previous generations. I don't think that's true. I do think that future generations are faced with a myriad of choices that previous generations did not have. We've talked in here about the paradox of choice and the studies that are showing that part of the burden of what's going on with future generations are the, the sheer volume of choices uh, with which they are confronted and faced. But that said, the future generations show amazing commitment. And I love the story of Elijah. Elijah keeps saying, nope, stay here. And he goes, nope, I'm going where you're going. I'm committed to this. I consistently see younger people who are doing incredibly significant, committed, meaningful work. Amen? And maybe you got an anecdotal story about a person that didn't, a future generation that didn't, or they acted entitled, or something, you know. Well, God knows the greatest generation didn't have any of those people. And the boomers were all cohesively good folks. Amen? And so we recognize, call out, nurture, celebrate commitment in the coming generations. We... We value it. And I want to tell you, it's present. I said this a few weeks ago. I was sitting over here and looking up here and watching on a Sunday. And I don't know that there was anybody on the platform that was over 35. Leading with great passion and commitment. And I made the comment when I came up here. I don't know what's going on with the critique of the future generations. But are you feeling what I'm feeling? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? These are young people who are leading from their heart. They're... They're leading in a passionate way. And sometimes they're looking at us other people going, come on, give me a little something back. <laughs> oh, maybe that's me. <laughs> but the next generation is committed. And I think we celebrate that. 
the third thing I think matters, and we hear from the story, but also observe, the next generations are seeking God's best. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, but we are committed to being an intergenerational church. Do you guys understand that language? And that is a belief that uh, means we believe that the church is made up of all of the generations right now. We don't believe our children are part of the future of the church. They are in some sense. But Lord knows we need children in the church. Amen? When I came here, there were four children in the church. Two of them were mine. (laughs) The average age of the congregation when I came was 75 years old. 75 years old. So, you know, when I came at 28, man, I blew that curve out of the water. So... And, and I've always imagined this and thought about this because as we've grown over these years and expanded into multiple generational ministry, I have always loved the noise of children in the church. It has never, ever one time bothered me. I mean, sometimes children can be, you know, like, that's enough. <laughs> but what a sad, what a sad thing when the church does not have room for the sound of children. When the old folks have a stranglehold in a way that they say, this needs to, this needs to feel like a mausoleum in here. This worshiping God is serious business. I've been in board meetings where we had to discuss the disappearance of the offering envelopes because children were writing on them. I said, that's losing all perspective, isn't it? And we're an intergenerational church. We value junior high kids and high school kids and children. We value them. We don't think of them as someday going to contribute if we do our jobs well. No, no, they're contributing right now. Right now they're contributing. And they're deeply committed. There are staggering statistics out there. For example, studies tell us that 80% of high school seniors who are in a committed Bible study will stop attending church within six months of graduation. Are you aware of that? 80% of high school seniors who are in a committed Bible study will stop attending church within six months. Now, the only thing that mitigates against these statistics, and Fuller, by the way, seminary has done enormous amounts of research into this stuff, is something that Fuller has named sticky faith, which means if your kid belongs to a great youth group, That does not really necessarily help them in their tenure in the church. But if they belong to a great church, that benefits them deeply in their tenure. That the kids who usually continue to go to church have felt a part of an intergenerational congregation in which they weren't pushed off into kids' church, our youth group, but were integrated into the life of the whole church. We believe in specialized care for kids. They need it. But they also need to be integrated into who we are as a body of Christ. Because we're an intergenerational church. And we put value on that. And I think as a pastor, I I have a unique role. Part of our role is to continue to hire staff that's young. Have you seen our new youth pastor? I think he's 14. I mean, he's like, he's in shape. I don't like him a lot. He's going to be here next service, so I'll say that again. (laughs) It's our job. 
It's our job to keep hiring younger people into our staff because we've got to be intergenerational. And the truth is, I can't see what he can see. It's very important that our staff is male and female because I can't see what the females on our staff can see. And I can tell you this, that as we hire these people into our staff and as we listen around a table and we talk about future and planning, we just got back from writing retreat where we were working on the 2020 sermon schedule and we took 11 people on this trip. And I want to tell you, they will force me to write sermons and preach series that I would not preach except they're saying, we got to talk about this. And I just want to tell you, their commitment level of saying, we want to get it exact, we want to do God's will, we want God's best. It is apparent over and over and over and over, and you ought to know that. Here in a few weeks, Colton, our new high school pastor, is going to preach on a weekend. I hope you get it. I hope you get why, and I hope you get the support and prayer that goes into being an intergenerational church as we look for these perspectives and we understand how deeply this next generation wants God's best. And we think about that together. Number four, the next generations are anointed by God. I just love the beauty of the story. I love the beauty of the story of Elisha asking for a double portion. And I don't know what sort of the prejudice is about it, but I just want to tell you, I do have the privilege to mentor young people. Some on our staff, but, but, but some in the national program. And I just tell you, I find a lot of young people who passionately desire the anointing of God. And sometimes their gifts and abilities are just staggering and overwhelming. I am not cynical about the future of the church. I am optimistic about who we are and about the kingdom of God. Because God has invited us into a place where the jump has tenure. And you and I, we're going to serve our best in our generation. And, and if you're a part of the you know, the greatest generation, you have something to contribute and share, and we want to hear what it is, and we want to be honoring. And if you're a boomer, and if you're an Xer or a Yer, or you like millennial, or you don't like millennial, or you're a Zer, or you don't even know what you are, <laughs> we're going to honor each other. And we're going to do the work of the great generation and the boomers and the Xers. We're going to do what is ours to do, and we're going to number our days because we are privileged to be a part of this great kingdom of God and in this kingdom of God, we honor all of the generations. Amen? Amen? Amen. God, would you help us? We believe you've called us not only to do your work, but to live out your kingdom. And in your kingdom, we honor one another. We honor the generations. We're optimistic. We're not cynical. We don't criticize older people. We don't criticize younger people. We look for and expect and invest so that the very best of the kingdom life might go forward. And we are thankful. We are thankful. And so I pray that you would guide each of us. Teach us how we might invest. How we might grow. How we might find ways to connect across generational lines. Not just with our own kids and grandkids, but with kids everywhere. With young people. Find ways to serve and Find ways to be of use. Teach us to number our days and give us wisdom and lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.